I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Adam Grant. Download the MP3 of our produced show at onbeing.org. I don't hear them yet, but maybe they're coming. Hello? Hello. You hear me? I do. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> this is Adam. Yeah, Krista, welcome. Hi, Krista. Thank you for having me. So glad you're doing this. We've been reading you and following you and looking forward to this for a long time. Thank you. I'm sorry it's been such a long time coming. No, don't worry. Um, well, we, yeah, do you need some sound? Okay. How's that? Snuggle up. All right. <laughs> you asked for it. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, do you have any? Do you have any questions of me before we start? I only have answers. Okay. No. Uh, <laughs> no. Are there any questions I should be asking? No. No. I just. You know. I. I I'm aware that um, you're often in the mode of presenting and performing and. And you're good at that. Um, but this is, you know, just more reflective, exploratory, thinking out loud. Sounds like fun. Okay, good. Yeah, I think we're about to get more intimate than appropriate, in yeah, fact. Yeah, that's what we like, yeah. <laughs> Radio is an intimate medium. <laughs> so it is. <laughs> I did. Oh, today's class was about why groups make horrible decisions and how to avoid it. Mm. And uh, we talked about why uh, students sent a bunch of race car drivers to their doom and how they could have uh, made sure that that didn't happen. Okay. Great. Well, let's um, let's plunge in. Um, okay. I think the answer is no. Is that right, Tim? Negative. Okay. All right. Um, so, so I start all of my interviews, whoever I'm speaking with, um, with this. Wondering about whether there was a religious or spiritual background to your childhood, however you would describe that. The short answer would be no. Uh, very little, in fact. Uh, I grew up unclear on what the meaning and purpose of spirituality was and asking a lot of questions that had no clear answers. Hmm. Uh, was And were you unclear because it wasn't being... Nothing was being uh, taught or just because it didn't make sense, what you, what you did understand of it? It was much, probably mostly the latter. Okay. Um, yeah, I, you know, just every, every answer that I discovered raised new questions, mm-hmm. right? So who created the universe? Well, who created the being who created the universe? Yeah. Where did it all come from? The usual questions, yeah. right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, and you know it's interesting because the this passion you have for giving and helping 
and service, you know, all of these things are associated, I think, with spiritual traditions at their best. I'm just, tell me, you know, how do you trace the beginnings of those passions and curiosities in your life? Well, I think I had some amazing role models who were extremely generous and in ways that I I never would have expected. So growing up, uh, my grandmother once drove two and a half hours through a snowstorm so that my mom could go exercise. Uh, <laughs> and my grandmother lived like five miles away. Uh, so this is, this is a fairly unusual effort. And, you know, I remember at the time being really touched by it. Hmm. And she was always, you know, at our house making, you know, great meals for us. And um, I guess my grandparents on both sides were very, very heavily involved in our lives. And I just thought grandparents were the coolest thing ever because the whole role was about giving. Yeah. And I remember, you know, I think this is something we all experience when we receive unexpected and meaningful gifts. We want to pay it back, but there's really nothing you can do to pay it back. So the next best thing is to pay it forward. And I guess that happened to me a lot as a kid. And then in high school, I was a a diver, uh, the springboard kind, not the scuba kind. And I had very little talent. I walked like Frankenstein. Uh, I could hardly (laughs) jump or even touch my toes. And uh, I had this incredible coach, Eric Best, who said, uh, you know, yeah, that's the bad news. But the good news is diving is a nerd sport and it attracts all the people who are too slow for track and too short for basketball and too weak for football. (laughs) So if you put in a lot of energy, you could become pretty good at this. And that really lit a fire under me. But what was remarkable about Eric was we only had diving season from November through March. And he took countless hours out of his spring, summer, and early fall to coach me just volunteering. Mm -hmm. And he said, as a coach, I will put in whatever you put in. And he didn't get any compensation for it. I was terrible, so it wasn't like he was going to turn me into an (laughs) Olympian. And he just, he really loved diving, and he really took joy in helping his divers grow, personally as, as well as athletically. And, you know, that, that was really a life-changing experience for me. I, I ended up getting good enough that uh, I qualified for the Junior Olympic Nationals twice and yeah. uh, ended up going to, to dive at the NCAA level at, in college. And none of that would have happened without Eric's generosity. And then in college, I had a, a couple professors who showed the same kind of deep commitment to their students. And uh, I guess I, I just began to believe the world would be a better place if we could bring out that quality in, in those around us. Um, Abraham Lincoln called it, called it the, the better angels of our nature. Yes, yes. And I think we all have better angels, but that oftentimes the way we've lived our lives, it doesn't necessarily bring them out. Right. And, um, you know, one of the, 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 the language, some of the language you've coined is, um, you know, you've ended up working a lot with people in organizations and, um, with organizations and how they work with people. Um, I think that's also a sphere of our public life where there's always a lot of um, reasonable cynicism, um, right? I mean, even these days we have new models of business which tur- turn out as they mature to look like old models of business with much cooler perks. Um, but you really, you know, as you say, you you talk about you know, and, and, and there's something that when we can doubt about, you know, employees helping uh, people get the most out of their jobs is powered by a motivation to get the most out of employees. But I see you really working against that cynical edge 
Um, and one of the things you've talked about and that your your book is about that you're very you've you've coined this language of givers and matchers and takers. And I want to talk about matchers and takers a little later on. But I want to first talk about givers. And um I, th- I think you know what you just described is very vivid because it's a it's a merger of a generosity of spirit and really practical care. Um is that is t- so? Tell me how you start talking about about this personality type or this. I don't know. You wouldn't call it a personality type, would you? What would you call it? I would call it a, a style of interacting with others, or, okay. or maybe a value or a motivation. Yeah. Um, I think that it's it's actually challenging because it seems like the worst place. Excuse me, the workplace is the last place we should ever talk about generosity. Yeah. And that's exactly why it's part of the reason why I think we need it there. That's a very um, fraught place to talk about it. It is. Yeah. It's, it's difficult. And I, I will be the first to tell you, I'm extremely skeptical of the motivations of leaders and of the reasons that drive a lot of business decisions. Yeah. Um, but what's, what's fascinating to me about this t- topic is that most of us spend the majority of our waking hours at work. Yeah, right. And if, if, if you even believe in the slightest... This is where we spend our lives, yeah. It, it is, right? Mm-hmm. You, I do, you do, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah. Krista, I guess like, if you buy the idea that, that generosity is a core value in life, the, the data are actually pretty strong that it may be the core value in life, but we don't even have to go that far. We can just say it's one of the most important values that people hold dear. It's a little bit of a tragedy to leave that out of the place where they spend the majority of their hours. And what I've encountered over and over again um, in my career, both with students and with the executives I've worked with, is they often feel like they have to check those values at the office door. And I I think that's a mistake. And I guess what I set out to, to reveal was that this tendency to look for ways to improve the lives of others, to want to help others and enjoy that without expecting anything in return, which I think is at the heart of being a giver, um, is actually something that does not have to compromise your professional success. Yeah. Uh, just, just as you wouldn't worry that you're going to be a bad parent if you're generous, or you're going to be a terrible community member if you care about the people who <laughs> live near you, mm-hmm. right? You can also be an extraordinarily successful professional if you demonstrate concern for the people that you work with. Right, uh, so, and that, that, I think, is the story here, or yeah. part of the story. And, and one of the things that you have demonstrated in your research is that um, givers are overrepresented um, among the people, among people who are least successful, and I, you know, by certain measures that we use. Um, they are, they can be people who burn out and who... Um, who who let other who 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 um, stay behind while other people get ahead for various reasons, but they are also overrepresented um, at the at the other end of that spectrum of people who, by certain metrics, we qualify as successful. That's right. I, I think that was one of the biggest surprises here is that people who are generous were the most likely to fail big and succeed big. Mm. And that always begs the question, what's the difference between the failed and successful yeah. givers? Yeah. And I've gotten a lot clearer about this since I wrote Give and Take. I think that it, it fundamentally comes down to the choices we make every day about who we help, when we help, and how we help. So the, the who is, I think, pretty simple. Um, failed givers are the people who help anyone. Hmm. 
successful givers are much more likely to be thoughtful about what is this person's history and reputation like? Um, before I go and overextend myself and give you 17 hours, I might want to find out if you're likely to take advantage of me. Yeah. Uh, and exercise just a little bit of, of caution or, or self-protection there. Um, the when is basically about protecting time to make sure that you achieve your own goals. Uh, one of the mistakes that failed givers make is they drop everything for any request that comes in. Right, right. And what you see, you see with successful givers is they're much more likely to prioritize and say, okay, I've got these windows blocked out to make sure I can progress on my own tasks. Mm-hmm. And then I have other periods of time set aside to be, try to be helpful and responsive to others. So, so there is a balance between the concern you have for others and the, the, the concern you have for yourself, the value with which you also hold yourself. There has to be. Mm-hmm. If there's not, you're at much higher risk for burnout. You're also at greater risk for being exploited. Yeah. And it's just like on an airplane, right? You have to secure your oxygen mask before assisting others. And the irony is, if, if you look at 30-plus years of data on this, the people who are the most selfless, the most altruistic, actually give less than the people who balance concern for others with concern for self. Give, le- give less measured how? Give, what does that mean? Every metric you can measure, money, time, huh. skills, huh. connections. Um, if, if you are selfless to the point of self-sacrifice, at some point you run out of energy and resources mm. to be able to contribute to others. Mm. Whereas people who are able to work toward their own goals uh, or at least keep their own interests in the rearview mirror when they're helping others uh, are able to sustain their energy and their resources, and that allows them to give much more over time. Mm. I, <clears throat> a couple of other things that I really... Found inter- find interesting the way you talk about this. One is you say, and this is why I kind of corrected myself when I said a personality type. You said we, you, you believe that we all have the giving muscle, um, but some of it exercise it more. That's a great way to, to capture it. Yeah, I mean, even if you're a psychopath, right, there are moments when you may feel empathy for others and want to help them irrespective of your own sort of opportunities for advantage or chances to get ahead. And yeah, some of those, some of us feel those impulses more often. Some of us express them more often, but it's, it's very true that we all have moments of giving and generosity where we're just focused on how we can make somebody else's life a little bit better. And it also turns out to be the case that if you exercise that muscle, it gets stronger mm-hmm. uh, as people practice helping others they start to notice what other people need. And when you notice what other people need, it's hard not to want to help them. Hmm. And another thing that I found really interesting is that this, this giver profile, that, that these people, it doesn't necessarily correspond to outer veneer, like who would come to mind as the most cheerful and nice um, in terms of, of presence and affect. This was also a surprise to me. Yeah. I, I tended to associate agreeableness with generosity. Yeah. So the agreeable people are the nice, friendly, welcoming, polite. And I just assumed if you're nice to somebody, that means you care about them. But there's this whole class of people who would actually score in the data as disagreeable givers. Um, they might be gruff and tough on the surface. They're skeptical, critical, and challenging. But at the end of the day, the day they have other people's best interests at heart. And they're actually, in, in my experience, the most undervalued people in our lives. Because mm-hmm. if you're a disagreeable giver, you're the person who gives the crit- critical feedback that nobody wants to hear, but everyone needs to hear. 
right? You're, you're playing devil's advocate. You're asking tough questions. You're challenging the yeah. status quo. And we, we need to appreciate those people much more in our lives than we currently do. You know, this, is, this one is so interesting because um, on the surface, it's a little surprising. Then the minute you start thinking about it, right, you think of those people who, as you say, might be gruff or stern in a way that makes you rise <laughs> to the occasion, but, but who also have huge hearts. And you always know that. And you're right. They're kind of these bedrock people. They are. And there, there was a, uh, a software engineer at Google who had a great way of describing them. He said, oh, a disagreeable giver is somebody who has a really bad user interface, but a great <laughs> operating system. <Right. laughs> I, I thought that was, that was endearing. Yeah. And another thing you talk about that I just have to say I find very refreshing is um, you have found that we, you know, whereas we tend to think that Mm, that what what we are looking for as human beings, as professional people in particular, is work that isn't interesting that leads to to advancement. Um, you say that a sense of being of service to others is is on balance a greater motivator than those things, and actually makes people more productive. You know, this is one of those things that's pretty hard to make a case for on its face. Right? We think mm-hmm. that people are fundamentally selfish, and that's the value you ought to appeal to if you want to motivate people. And yet, look at all the things that people would never do for themselves that they constantly do for others. Um, whether it's something as simple as a boring task where you persist because you really care about the client who might benefit from it, whether it's all of the hours you might spend in the car driving your kids from place to place that you just wouldn't have bothered if it was only for you, um, working mm. in a job that's extremely difficult to sustain because it's physically taxing, it's exhausting, it's degrading because you're trying to provide for your family. But these are all things that people struggle immensely to do for themselves, but they readily do for others. And when I studied this, it was with fundraising callers who were doing a, a pretty yeah. unpleasant task. Yeah, a call um, center, to make, right? Exactly. Yeah, they're calling alums of universities and trying to get them to donate their hard-earned money. And when they were told about all the benefits of doing the job for, for themselves, it didn't affect their motivation at all. But when they realized that they were actually providing scholarships to help students go to school, their effort dramatically spiked. So in one case, just hearing from a scholarship student for five minutes about how that scholarship made a difference was enough to boost uh, weekly time on the phone by about 142% per caller and 171% uh, weekly revenue. And then we found that could get even bigger, that uh, if you got a scholarship student in who really deeply appreciated the work that the callers were doing, the average caller spiked more than four times greater money raised per week than before. But but something else so interesting in the way you described that study is that the call center employees, while all these this productivity went up as you describe, this the effect of that of that demonstration of the service they were providing was more unconscious than conscious, right? I mean, they didn't they didn't walk away saying, "Oh, I understand how I'm helping, and now I'm going to do better." It was more something that just touched them at a granular level. 
Yeah, this, this was not what I anticipated going in. Um, I had the data. It was a bunch of randomized controlled experiments. I had, you know, how the callers were doing before and afterward. I was comparing them to different control groups. And it was very clear that it was this experience of hearing from and meeting a scholarship student that boosted their motivation. And yet, when they filled out surveys, they didn't attribute any of the changes in their motivation to that experience whatsoever. And I think it was very hard. It's hard for any of us to say, yeah, I, I just had this five-minute interaction with a random person, and now I work twice as hard as I did before. Right? No, most people don't believe that small encounters can have that kind of large impact. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yet the, the data show otherwise. I mean, you also have this example of... Uh Doctors and nurses, at a, just at a hand station where people are supposed to use soap or hand sanitizer, the difference between the sign reading, hand hygiene prevents you from catching diseases, and the sign reading, hand hygiene prevents patients from catching diseases. <laughs> and that the latter actually motivates people to wash their hands in a different way. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh- <laughs> Dave Hoffman and I ended up doing this study after um, I was in the hospital with my wife when we were expecting our first child. And there were all these signs plastered around that said, uh, gel in, wash out. Yeah. And you know, as, as an organizational psychologist, I just looked at those signs and said, this is not a how-to problem. People know how to wash their hands. It's a why-to problem. They need a reason to do it. Huh. And the medical safety experts were all convinced that you have to just remind people, doctors and nurses especially, that this could affect them. Um, and so we tested the signs. They were identical. We just changed the word from you to patients. And only the patient sign worked. Uh, led more soap and gel to be used. You measured uh, the also, soap, right? <laughs> I didn't personally, but there was an environmental <laughs> services team that actually weighed the soap and gel dispensers <laughs> right. uh, based on the signs. But there were also um, – there were professionals on each unit doing covert observations of whether you wash mm-hmm. according to de- guidelines before and after patient contacts. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got about a 10% spike in frequency when it said patients, but not when it said you. And I think this is in part, it's a story of defensiveness that people don't want to believe they're going to get sick. And you can also point to your experience and say, look, I've worked in a hospital for seven years. I've been around a lot of ill patients and I've not gotten sick too often. So either I had a superior immune system going in or I've developed one now. <laughs> and with the patient sign, there's just no justification for not washing, right? How could you take the very vulnerable population that you're supposed to be helping and run the risk of hurting them? Right. And, you know, one thing that, um, that people say of you, and I think the reason... Um, a, a huge reason that your that your work has such credibility is because you really are someone who you practice what you preach. Um, I first read about you in that New York Times <clears throat> magazine piece, two thousand thirteen. Oh <laughs> yeah, you probably I can imagine that that was. It's, I mean, they, you were kind of put under the microscope for that, I think. Um, but, you know, here's one of the lines. For Grant, helping is not the enemy of productivity, a time-sapping diversion from the actual work at hand. It is the mother load, the motivator that spurs increased productivity and creativity for you first. And then as you go out in the world, as you find uh, in other people. I mean, there's this one line, helpfulness is Grant's credo. And I just, you know, how would you, obviously these are th- something, these are things people, somebody wrote about you. But, you know, what... What does that mean, and, and how does that break down, that credo, break down into practical actions in, in the course of an ordinary day? Well, I guess, you know, if, if you look at the evidence on this, 
the thing people want most in a job is a sense of meaning and purpose. They want to know what they do matters. And that's been true for literally generations across the American workforce. And you find similar things in other parts of the world. Um, we, we want to contribute to others. That's the biggest source of meaningfulness. And so it shouldn't be a surprise, right, that that's, that's something that, that I and many others find motivating. Um, and yet we don't have great narratives about, you know, here, I, I really love helping others. And that's the reason that I work so hard. Yeah. Right? That's not a modest thing to say. Um, well, it's also it's most... not a modest thing to say, and it's it's also not the way we talk. Uh, uh, that's not the way we impress others, right? With uh, talking yes, about me... how we help other people during the day. No, and I guess I guess it it wouldn't really make a lot of sense to try to impress people with with that particular yeah. statement. Yeah. But um, I guess you know, for for me, I, I really enjoy being helpful when I can. I think it it helps me feel that what I'm doing does make a difference, and that. You know, I, I've made choices that have value to others, not just to me. And I guess the way that I, I've tried to break that down practically is, is really following the lead of, of the gr- many of the greatest givers in my life. Um, as, a, as a professor, the two things that I love most is, are trying to share knowledge and make introductions. Um, so I feel like part of my job description is to know about hundreds and thousands of esoteric studies that have never seen the light of day. And there, there are few few things more exciting than when somebody poses a question like, has anybody ever studied? And then, you know, brings in a problem that has to do with worker psychology, which are my core areas of expertise. And I happen to know of a study that, that actually speaks directly to it and provides a novel solution. Huh. Um, that's great fun. And so I guess I, I spend a lot of that time, you know, answering random questions in class uh, where a student will pose a, a problem and ask, you know, has somebody tested uh, a treatment or a solution to this particular challenge that I've, I've encountered. Um, and I guess that, that breaks down into answering a lot of emails as well on, you know, can you find me ev- any evidence about, uh, you know, how to make decisions to shift uh, my, my, own, <laughs> my own levels of regret that I'm experiencing um, or, you know, to motivate the people that work with me. And then the other side of this is I feel like as a professor, one of the most interesting parts of the job is I touch lots of different worlds. Um, so I have former students working in all kinds of organizations. I work with, you know, lots of different companies, the military, uh, with governments. And so you know, I can often open doors to places where other people who have just worked with one organization don't have access. And for me, there are a few things more joyful than seeing two people who know each other, uh, who don't know each other, connect for the first time yeah. and really be able to help each other or develop a friendship out of that. And occasionally, accidentally, they fall in love. <laughs> Really? Do you have a matchmaking? Uh, it, it usually does not go well, I will say. But uh, um, I, I've also made the mistake of um, of introducing people who already know each other a few times. Uh, so yeah. I've tried to get more uh, more thoughtful about finding out if they're already connected first. Well, so I I I feel like if this New York Times article was accurate, and of course I have no reason to doubt that it was, you're, you're being you are being kind of humble. I mean, but but I mean, this talked about you know the emails you answer after work, the that you know people, uh, you know, ask for favors, ask questions, and that you're generous. You're generous with what you know and generous with your time. Um, I. You know, one, I, I did want to ask you, um, you know, you, you talk, for example, and so, and, but also here's what I think is really interesting about this too. Clearly you're passionate about 
the work you do, the actual research you do, and the teaching, the subject matter, the the, the knowledge that you transmit. Um, and that's part of the service aspect of your work. But a lot of this helping is about things that happen, you know, you might say around the edges of that work. It's around the, like, like the human connective tissue, um, not just around the work, but in the place where you are with students and other professors and colleagues and clients. I, I think even that is interesting in helping other people stretch their imaginations about what it means to kind of go through your days, including your working days, um, as a giver. Do you know? Do you know what I mean? It's not a lin- just a linear, n- narrow thing about the precise tasks you are performing and being paid for. Do you know I, what I mean? do. Although, yeah. yeah, Krista, I think that's an overly gracious description. Uh, the the way I see it is, yeah, my my core job is research and teaching, but you can't do either of those things without building meaningful relationships with extraordinary people. Mm-hmm. And every day there, there are, I guess, opportunities you stumble into where, and th- this to me is the hallmark of, of trying to live your life as a giver, where you can do something that benefits other people more than it costs you. Mm. And that, 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 just, that just seems efficient, right? <laughs> aside from the fact that it seems like the right thing to do. It's like, okay, um, I had a, a student in my office this morning who dreams of working for a particular company and doesn't know anyone there. Yeah. And I have nine former students who have worked there. It will literally take me 30 seconds to reach out to a few of those students and say, would you be willing to talk with this person about what your job is like and any interviewing tips you might have? And that could be life-changing if, if that turns out to be a meaningful job for the student. And it was the easiest thing in the world for me to do. And the students who help, who are now working at this company, they were in those shoes before. And there's, there, they, I often hear from them after the fact that they actually enjoyed talking with students about their jobs more than they enjoyed doing their jobs. <laughs> I, I love getting those emails. Can you send me some more students to give career advice to? Right. So, right. you know, that, that, just, that just feels like um, it's... It's really convenient when it works out where, you know, yeah, it's, it's not a core part of your job description, but the benefit, benefit to others is so much greater than the cost to you. How could you not do it? Yeah. But I mean, I guess I, even that example you just gave, the students, there's, some, there's value for them in being of service that is, 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 is it's not in a linear way connected with what they're doing. I, I guess I'm. I guess what I'm trying to get at is I. Th- I think, and I, I just want to kind of draw you out on this. I think, I, and I'm, I'm. You know, I'm. I'm thinking of people who are listening in all kinds of professions, um, in all in, uh, who structure their lives, their working lives, their home lives in all kinds of ways, and think that this is not. Um, you know, let's say this. It's not uh, one of the things you talk about is like meaningful work, and how I think that. And I've, I've been talking about this a lot with people lately, how, you know, the notion of meaningful work um, is getting decoupled from just your job title or the organization you work for. I mean, what you're talking about, you are, you are researching that, but you're also talking about just how you are present, how a person is present as a human being um, in all the relationships that surround and weave through whatever work we do, and that that also is a service. I I think that's where a lot of people derive actually the greatest meaning from their work. 
Um, one of the, the most inspiring bodies of research on this for me has been uh, by two great colleagues, Amy Resneski and Jane Dutton. Uh, Amy's at, at Yale, where I know you did one of your degrees, Krista, mm-hmm. and Jane's at the University of Michigan. And they study this idea of job crafting, which is saying, look, instead of being a passive recipient of my job, I'm going to become an active architect of it and shape it to better align with my skills, interests, and values. And they, they basically make the point that your job wasn't, in most cases, designed for you. It was designed <laughs> for a whole bunch of people to, to perform it in a consistent way. And there's a lot you can do to customize it on the margin to make it more ideal but still realistic. And they, they study this in so many interesting places. Uh, they've done studies with hospital cleaners who adjust their jobs to create opportunities to care for patients and make their families feel more welcome in the hospital when, when everybody's overlooking that and just focusing mm-hmm. on the medical parts of care. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what I think is so great about job crafting is if you look at the, the job crafting actions that people find most meaningful, the adjustments that they make every day to their jobs, they're not just tasks, they're relationships. Yeah. It's saying there's some people that I would really love to make a closer connect- connection with, and I'm going to propose a side project with them. Or I'm going to structure my day so I get to spend a little bit more time interacting with them. Or what's amazing is how many people choose to craft their jobs in ways that help others. So I'm going to, to start a program, uh, as I studied one particular manager in a retail company, who said, I want my employees to have a chance to learn new languages. I can't send them to foreign countries, so I'm going to organize a language club. And we're all going to meet up over lunch and try to help each other to develop new skills. And it's, it's amazing that when given the freedom to do this kind of job crafting and adjust their jobs in any way they want, people choose naturally in so many cases to make modifications that benefit others, not just themselves. Hmm. You, <clears throat> you also talk about just the, the value of small favors. And I think you were, you were just pointing at that, you know, the, the person who, who wants who you can you can easily give a connection to but you talked about you know that that making introductions can be acts of giving and you know you've also talked about things like knowledge sharing mentoring helping providing feedback someplace in another interview you said sometimes it's as simple as showing up early or staying a bit late to support your colleagues i i think i think all of that kind of um flesh on the bones of this is really useful I think that people are really narrow typically in how they think about giving. Yeah. Um, most of us think about giving time and giving money. We don't think as much about how we can make micro loans of our knowledge, our skills, mm. our connections to other people. Yeah. And I think that what, what's interesting about this, the, the person who I think captured this best is, is Adam Rifkin, uh, who, as you know, is a, a serial entrepreneur in the Bay Area. And Adam has coined this idea of a five-minute favor, and has basically spent the last two decades of his career saying, look, a five-minute favor is just a, a, a small act that could add large value to other people's lives. And we could all afford to do a few more five-minute favors each week. Mm-hmm. And you should be willing to do five minutes for anyone, right? Because it's just such a small investment that could be meaningful. And what I love about that is that it's a great reminder for if you already are a giver, saying, look, I do not have to spend 42 hours with every person who asks. <laughs> <laughs> but right. if, if you're hoping to shift in the giving direction, it's, it's a really nice way to start to say, look, yeah, a lot of acts of giving sound exhausting and I'm worried about overextending myself, but I could do a few five minute favors this week. Mm. Sure. Mm. Um, I want to ask you one other thing that you talked about consolidating giving yields greater happiness. What is what is what is that act of consolidating? What does that look like? Well, there, there are actually two kinds of, of consolidating. So one one is the timing. 
Uh, Sonia Lubomirsky led this terrific study where you're randomly assigned to do five random acts of kindness per week. And you're either asked to do them one per day each week. So you do one Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, et cetera. Or you do all five of those acts in one day each week. So you pick Tuesday as your giving day and you knock out all five contributions that day. (laughs) And you do that every week for 10 weeks. Uh, So I I think I called them sprinkling if you spread them out and and chunking if you put them all together in one day. And whenever I poll people about this, about 80% of the audience thinks that the sprinklers are going to get happier, that a little bit of giving each day is good for your mood. And Sonia found the opposite, that only the chunkers, only the people who do all their giving in one day per week, get any boost in their mood whatsoever. <laughs> uh, and I, it, really surprising. How um, do you Krista, understand what, that? What's that about? Uh, well, I was going to turn this back around. Yeah, I mean, you, you have won a National Humanities Medal. You do a lot for <laughs> other people. How would you explain this? <laughs> well, that's not what's... I'm the, I'm the person asking the questions here. I'm in charge. Um. Okay, this is a mark of a giver, only <laughs> okay. asking other people questions. <laughs> no, but what, what would you say? How would, how would you account for that? Gosh, I don't know. It's really interesting. Um, I don't know if the... Is, is the, the, the I feel like I'm on the spot here. I, I don't want to give the wrong answer. Um, is, um, no, the great thing is there the, isn't a wrong answer. Yeah, is the sprinkling... If the sprinkling is just another way to disperse, I mean, if it becomes more intentional... Um, that you've somehow that you've more intentionally built it cr- into uh, your time. I don't know. So I'm I'm glad I asked because that that explanation has not been really considered to my knowledge yet. So th- this is a, a, a really fun example of a study that we we've seen this effect of chunking is beneficial, but we don't really know why, and hmm. we're waiting for people to to follow up on it. So um, I think the idea that it becomes more intentional if you do it all in one day is really compelling. Hmm. Um, And it's related, actually, to one of the explanations that's been popular so far, which is the idea that if you do it um, sort of a little bit each day, you sprinkle it out, it just it becomes another chore in your to do list. Yeah, right. Uh, Whereas if you know, if you do it all in one day, this this is now a meaningful contribution and it becomes more than just a a drop in the bucket. You feel like you made a difference today. Um, But I I do think it goes against the grain of what most people do as far as giving is concerned. And you know, there's, I guess there's a case to be made for saying, you know, maybe you should have a Giving Thursday and try to line up a bunch of your contributions in that day each week. It's something to look forward to, and it's also a chance to, to know that you've got other days reserved to, to be productive or get your own things done. Well, but you, you know, I, I think for a lot of people that also might feel like it takes some of the shine off. You know what I mean? If you institutionalize it. And maybe that's wrong. Maybe that's a wrong instinct. Well, I, I don't think it has to go so far as institutionalized, right? Yeah. Like my, my version of this is um, I, when in a teaching semester, I have two core days on campus each week. Mm-hmm. And I hold all my office hours on those two days, knowing that if I do a really bad job in my meetings with three or four students, I have a bunch of others where I can make up for it. <laughs> and I, I will walk away from that day feeling like I did something helpful in the span of you know, some number of hours. Um, and that's what it's more about. And then saying, OK, you know, I'm, I'm in problem solving, advice giving, relationship building mode on those days. Mm. And that it's much easier for me to write or analyze data or give a speech efficiently on other days because I, I don't have to sort of warm up for each of those different skill sets. Um, but I think the other way you could think about this is say, you know, it's, it's not necessarily just about time. It's also about how you give. So you could you could ask, are you a generalist or a specialist in the way that you help others? Mm. 
And most people prefer the generalist approach, but the specialist approach turns out to work better um, in the sense that if you help people in lots of different ways every day, you just become a jack of all trades and a nice person who can be bothered for anything. Whereas if you specialize in one or two forms of giving that you enjoy and excel at, then people respect that you have unique expertise to share. They actually come to you for what you like to give, which makes it more energizing than exhausting. And you get a right. reputation as being somebody who has real value to offer, and they come to you when you can make a meaningful contribution. And I think we could probably all do a better job stepping back and asking, what are those one or two forms of giving that I get excited to do, that I do uniquely well, and how do I focus on those and let other people carry some of the others? Mm, that's great. So um, so givers inhabit the world together with what you call takers and matchers, um, uh, as you say, this makes sense to me. You know, matchers follow the norm. So if they're in the presence of givers, so so givers and takers have have impact because um, they will be um, what the the tone they set or the presence they set will will be matched. Um, I mean, it is sobering, and I I think again we we've all had this experience. And t- I tell me if this is correct. I think what you say is that it's possible for one taker to dominate and ruin an, an organization or an experience. Um, it takes more givers. It's not possible for givers to <laughs> redeem the whole in, the same, in quite the same way. Yeah, the, the way I like to put it is that one bad apple can spoil a barrel, but one good egg does not make a dozen, Yeah, whatever that means. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, it, it does, when, when you study this in teams, for example, one really selfish taker is enough to leave everybody else paranoid, making sure that they don't get taken advantage of and can really depress the generosity of a whole group. Whereas you put one generous person in the group and more often people are like, great, you can do all my work <laughs> instead mm-hmm. of saying I'm now inspired to give to. And I think we have to be very careful about that bad is stronger than good effect um, because it, it is possible that takers can really pollute a culture or a community. So, so is this one way, one, one factor in why organizations are such tricky things? Um, why, um, and especially big organizations and as, as organizations grow, that um, you can have an organization full of wonderful creative people, but you can have a culture uh, that is toxic for those people which they survive rather than, <laughs> rather than flourishing in. Sadly, I think that's a big part of the story. Mm-hmm. A lot of takers are, are skilled at kissing up and kicking down. Yeah. And they, they manage to convince leaders that they're actually givers as part of their rise up the ladder. And then, you know, a lot of people think that power corrupts. But I think if you look at the evidence on this, it's more likely that power reveals in the sense that if you're a taker, you don't have to pretend to be a giver. Once you've gained a lot of status and influence, now you have the freedom to express your values. Mm. And you know, no one can take away the power that you've gotten as easily as they could have before. And so I think what happens is you know, takers often rise by being fakers. Uh, and then you get to see their true colors once they're in a top leadership position. 
And by that point, it's very hard to get away with anything other than self-protection. Uh, because the moment that a taker finds out that you're a giver, it's, it's like there's, yeah. a, there's a vampire that has a, a homing <laughs> signal. <laughs> good, good luck surviving that one. Well, so I just, we should probably do a quick definition. I mean, how would you talk about the, the, this orientation of being a taker? With that? Well, I think of takers as, as people whose default is to try to get rather than give. Um, so their goal is to come out ahead in every interaction. Uh, they want to claim work that's interesting, visible, and important, leave the grunt responsibilities for everyone else, and they tend to feel entitled uh, to the lion's share of resources and credit, mm-hmm. even when they didn't do the majority of the work. You've also said that takers can be people who were givers who've been burned. I mean, obviously, takers can be people who are defensive or greedy because of vulnerability, right? That's one of the most common routes, right, mm-hmm. is to, to be somebody who used to be more generous and then got scared away. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, this, this happens to a lot of people, right? They, they start out sort of sharing their knowledge, their resources, credit freely, and then they get taken advantage of. And they overgeneralize that experience, especially if it happens a few times, and they come to think, you know, at the end of the day, everybody's really a taker. You know, it's a dog-eat-dog dog competitive world, and yeah, if I don't put myself first, nobody else will. Well, it's kind of, I mean, there are many things you can say about America, but it, there's something about that, the kind of self-made man, right? There's something in our national ethos that, that condones that on some level. I don't know. You know, I have to say... Uh, I have very mixed feelings on that because, yeah. yes, the, the U.S. does score more individualistic than most other countries yeah. around the world. But individualism doesn't have to be vertical. It doesn't have to be I'm superior to you. It's more about self-reliance mm-hmm. right? and saying I want to be an independent decision maker. I want to have autonomy. So <laughs> a self-made man does not have to be somebody who steps on everyone else on the way up the top. Yeah. Uh, and I think there, there are probably some people who have turned that into a caricature. But even if you go back uh, in the 1830s, uh, de Tocqueville, the French philosopher, made this fascinating observation. He said, Americans excel at explaining all of these extraordinarily generous and selfless things they do as self-interested. Uh, so they, they volunteer and give to charity at rates uh, that are higher than most other countries. And then they come up with these convoluted justifications for why, in fact, giving away your money is really good for you. And it's still true. It is. Yeah, I mean, you, you can interview heroes, right? You've done this yeah. on your show yeah. who say, oh, you know, anyone would have would have jumped into the burning building. Yeah. And you're like, no, actually, not everyone would have done that. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that we, we have a theory, uh, and Dale Miller uh, at Stanford has written extensively about this. We have a theory that you're supposed to justify your actions as self-interested, even when they're not. And that may be more American <laughs> than the right. idea of self-interest itself. Yeah. I just, you know, it was very interesting reading you and, and thinking about all the things you think about um, I, I, you know, you know, in theology, there's this this notion of the problem of evil, and it, it's usually posed as you know evil on a grand cosmic scale. Um, but this kind of comes back to what you said at the beginning. You know, the places where we work are the places where we spend so much of our lives, and I feel like you know the problem of evil in the workplace. <laughs> 
is 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 actually more real and present and and painful and debilitating um, for more people than you know almost you know it's it's right up there with all the other forms of evil in terms of what plagues people's lives and you you do you are kind of wanting to I think expose that and open it up. Yeah, I think that it's unfortunate that there there haven't been more efforts by leaders and organizations to say, look, over time, the evidence is overwhelming. We've been studying this for 35 years, that if you want to boost your organization's profits or customer satisfaction or employee retention, one of the best investments you can make is to build a culture of givers. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when givers share their knowledge, you promote innovation. When they make introductions, that's also good for fueling creativity. Uh, When they do things that are not in their job description but help the organization, it's easy to see the return to that. And yet we don't have that many leaders working hard to say, in the long run, a culture of giving is actually an effective route to success. Uh, And instead, as you get obsessed with short-term quarterly results and making sure that you hit your numbers, that your investors are concerned with day-to-day, um, it's much easier to sort of trap people in an every man, woman, children sort of for themselves mentality, uh, even when that is not what works for the long-term best interest of the organization of the whole, and it's not the set of values that most people want to subscribe to. Yeah. Um, you've said that the question of how to turn takers into givers is for you one of the thorniest kind of unanswered questions you have. Is that still true? Did I say that? Somewhere, yeah. Yes, then I totally endorse that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it's, it's, it's a huge problem. Um, I think the good news is that very few people are takers in every walk of life. Uh-huh. Uh, you do have sociopaths who are more likely to adopt that orientation in all the relationships. But for most people, think of like the biggest selfish jerk that you work with. Um, and then, you know, watch that person <laughs> drive their kids to soccer practice. Yeah. You know, you don't see that, that many of those sort of people that you think of as takers say things like, well, gee, you know, you want to ride to soccer? What have you done for me lately? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there are certain, certain roles and relationships that, that bring out the givers in us. Um, and I think that if we can observe the variations in people's behavior and understand, you know, what, what brings that out, right? What are the moments when they act more generous? We can try to tilt them, but that is not always a, a, a simple thing to do. Um, you have two daughters, is that right? Two daughters? I do, and yeah. a son. Oh, and a son. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I, uh, I, 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 one reason I think this is so helpful, the way you talk about being of service, being a giver, is it's very integrated. It's woven into the things you're already doing. I mean, I know you're, you're also not, not opposed to people being involved in other kinds of service outside work. But you're talking about the p- potential. I think everybody has to find ways to do this in the course of their days. I think for I think especially when we think of service activities and giving back, when we think of that as outside um, our, our, our usual day, especially when you become a parent, you just feel like you have a finite amount of energy. And maybe more of that energy goes into that, that relationship. Yeah. I, I mean, that's certainly how I feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always want to give to my family first and foremost. I think that we overlook, though, when we just stop there, 
the notion that, in fact, there are lots of ways to give that involve children and parenting. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that it's extremely important for children to see their parents giving and not just giving to them where they can take it for granted, but to see them helping other people. That's actually part of how children learn values associated with generosity, hmm. um, is they see their parents doing things for other people. And you know, I guess one, one of the ways that I've, in, small, in a very small sense that I've, I've tried to bring that to light is um, I, I brought our oldest daughter to review sessions that I do for students before final exams. Hmm. And it's very deliberately not me teaching a class where you know, it's, she just knows it's my job and that's what a professor or a teacher does. Uh, it's an optional you know, session where I show up and try to answer any questions students have so that they've really internalized the material and they feel prepared. Um, and part of that is I, I just know that if, if she hijacks the session, it'll be okay because we don't have a class agenda. <laughs> but, but also, I, you know, as I think about that, I think, yeah, you know, I, I want her to know that it's important to me, not just when I talk about it, but when she sees me do it, mm-hmm. to, to give to my students um, and to help them however I can. Um, I also think there are lots of ways that we can, as parents, um, do you know, acts of, of service together that are not necessarily you know, sort of just parenting or just volunteering. Um, you know, I know that, that giving away gifts at holiday time, um, family-oriented volunteering, uh, those are some of the most meaningful actions you can take if you want to raise a child to be a giver, and it doesn't have to be zero-sum in that sense. Um, I've, I've worked with a couple of organizations that are now, uh, they've noticed that there are many grassroots efforts by employees to create volunteering programs. And they've said, you know, we want to create family-oriented volunteering programs where we're going to give you X days per year to volunteer, but we'd like you to do it with your children yeah, so that this could great. be a family experience. And yeah. I think that's brilliant. That's brilliant. It's also little things you've talked about, the difference between, like verbs work better with nouns when you're talking to children about this, that, that the word help uh, help rather than be a helper. <laughs> oh, this, uh, this research is so interesting. Chris Bryan and his colleagues have actually shown that more children will help if you ask them to be a helper rather than just to help. And the, the idea is that even as young as three, they want to earn the identity as a generous person. And so be a helper is much more attractive. It, so be a helper is more attractive. Act. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, also that the children who are praised uh, by being told, you know, gosh, you are a really generous person, as opposed to that was a generous thing to do, are much more likely to repeat the Interesting. act. Because it becomes part of their character. I mean, you, you reiterate something I've heard from many different directions, from all kinds of people who think about parenting and children and what we nurture in children. That, and it's, it's, it's this very frustrating thing that children don't learn by listening. <laughs> they learn by observing. If only, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I wondered, you were, when you were talking about your, your, your grandmother um, when we first began to speak, um, I... I I, I was actually speaking with a psychologist, not on air, but just, you know, a person I knew, who talked about um, the fact that as we, as, we, as we grow older, and, you know, I'm in my 50s, so I think I'm moving there, um, that, you, that, that, that you become more embodied um, as you grow older, or you become more settled in yourself, and that's, a, and I think, you know, if it's going well, and that's a full body experience, and that... That children, that one reason maybe children are so 
uh, drawn to grandparents and impressed by them is because they experience that, that fullness of presence. I mean, because really what you, again, you were talking about your, your grandmother having this generosity of spirit, but it was just completely rooted. I mean, it was who she was and it was what she did and those things worked together. Um, I don't know. It's just it's somehow I, 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 it, it occurred to me that this fact that children learn by observing that this may be one reason grandparents make such an impression. But that's that's fascinating. Off the I never top thought of about that before. I love it. <laughs> Good. Well, that's great. I, I, I think that that it actually strikes me as really compelling. There, there's a, a colleague of mine, Sue Ashford, uh, who studies the self, and there's there's a lot of evidence that especially through teenage and college years, but even as, as people move into their 20s and 30s, that there's a lot of instability in self-esteem, that people feel like they have worth only if they accomplish a certain thing mm-hmm. or achieve a certain goal. And self-esteem is sort of staked in being able to prove yourself in different activities and domains. And as people get older, what Sue has observed is they develop more of sort of a calm, secure sense of self that's not dependent on how did today go. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I'm still a person of value, even if I had a really bad yeah, day. Yeah, because you just have a longer arc of experience, right? You just exactly. know because you've been there before. You know that t- today leads to tomorrow. I think there's so much to be said for that. And it, mm-hmm. it may also help to explain that there's so much evidence suggesting that the elderly are the most generous among us. Mm-hmm. Uh, that when you look at proportions of income, when you look at time volunteering, uh, when you look at how willing they are to stop and help someone who's in need, um, basically every decade you age, your odds of being generous go up and up. Uh-huh. And I think, I think that's a big part of it. There's this sense of, of secure self, but there's also this um, sort of greater desire to, to get back. Part of it is worrying about this horrible generation that's coming up into the world. Yeah. They really need some help. But I think that, that people become much more clear about the value that they can add, and they don't doubt themselves nearly as much as they age. Right. Um, and, 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 um, yeah, we're, we're going to be, we're drawing to a a close, but I, I, I want to talk, um, about something you've been writing about lately about, about friendship, um, in work. And so, so we've talked about all these ways that as a colleague, you can help others, you can be of service. Um, and then there's, and this is in that, but I think more specifically, there's something you've been writing about it, which is how we are among each other with our colleagues. Um, I mean, actually, one story you've told is about this program you worked on at Borders, um, the former Borders books, where there was a fund set up. Can you tell that story for employees to 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 create a fund for other co- other employees who who might get into a situation of need? Yeah. Borders, I think, was obviously in a, a tough industry with very low margins. Yeah. And there were, there were these events that eventually were called life-qualifying events where you know, somebody would, would need expensive medical care that their insurance wouldn't cover or a natural disaster would damage their house or there was a death in the family and they, they needed to be able to get a, a very expensive ticket to the funeral. And these things happened, and people, they, they couldn't afford to take care of them. And a group of employees actually got together and said, we want to be the kind of company that is like a family. And we want to be there for each other in these situations. And we, if we could get a large number of people to donate a small amount to this employee uh, assistance program, it was an employee foundation, um, maybe we can accumulate enough resources that the company will match donations. 
And so they, they got this, uh, this program off the ground. And lo and behold, it became an, a huge source of support to Borders employees. They had a whole grant application process to make sure that, you know, you had an event that, that really qualified, uh, but they would turn it around within a day, hmm. sometimes faster if it was a desperate need. And they ended up expanding it to, to provide also scholarships for the children of Borders employees. And these kinds of employee assistance programs, I think, are extraordinary. Um, we've seen them at, at other kinds of companies, the limited uh, Domino's Pizza, Southwest Airlines. I would be thrilled to see more, more organizations start them. And what, what was eye-opening to me about the research we did was um, employees who had been involved with these programs were more committed to the organization. Right, right, it was, right. It was not the employees who received the donations. It mm-hmm. was the ones who gave. Mm-hmm. So there's that, that, just that the, the reward again. of service, the reward there of giving. There you go. Yeah. If, if you gave to your colleagues, you just felt like you were part of an organization that cared and that strengthened your attachment. And what a, what a meaningful way to really create a community. Well, and also the fascinating piece of that story is learning that that program at Borders outlived the company itself. Is that right? That fund still exists for former employees or it did? It did. It, it actually survived the company, which yeah. I think was a remarkable testament. Yeah. And and you've been writing recently about friendship at work and how um, fewer Americans now than 30 years ago will say that they have a close friend at work. And fewer Americans say this than people in other countries. Yeah, as uh, as the movie Fight Club termed it, we have more and more single-serving friends. And <laughs> when I, sorry, I didn't see Fight Club. What does that mean, single-serving <laughs> uh, friends? It was, it was a term uh, that I think uh, Edward Norton and Brad Pitt had had used to talk about the person you talk to on an airplane, oh. and how that that person oh, temporarily single is serving. a friend. Oh my gosh, yeah. But it's a transaction. You probably won't stay in touch with that person or even ever see them again. Mm-hmm. And I think you feel – I get the feeling as you write about this, that this is something to bemoan, that, that this is not good for us not to have friendships at work. I think it's unfortunate both from a happiness standpoint because the evidence is overwhelming that people are more satisfied in jobs where they can make friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gallup certainly collected a lot of employee engagement data linking engagement to having a best friend at work. Um, but also there's there's good performance evidence on this that friends actually outperform sort of colleagues and acquaintances in decision making. They also put in more effort because you're more likely co- to consider the opinions of people that you trust and care about. You're also more likely to help them, which goes to the giving theme. Uh, and you at the end of the day, because you care more about each other's success, you tend to work harder for each other mm. as well as smarter for each other. And so, yeah, I think people who have notions of professionalism that says – Friendships belong outside of the office. Right, there's a boundary thing we have. There's a there's an idea about creating boundaries. There is, particularly if you're a segmenter uh, who really likes to have sort of walls between the personal and the professional, yeah. uh, as opposed to an integrator who likes to blur the lines. Um, and you you wrote um, whether we bond at work is a personal decision, but it may involve less effort and vulnerability than we realize. Yeah, this is, this is from one of my mentors, Jane Dutton, who studies high-quality connections in the workplace mm-hmm. and finds that you don't have to have a long-standing relationship to experience a genuine sense of connection, that even just a single interaction marked by mutual respect and trust is enough to energize both people. And I think if we thought about having more high-quality connections, more moments where we just treat each other with respect and trust, 
and we open up a little bit, it actually becomes the foundation for having meaningful interactions, even if we don't call somebody a lifelong friend. Mm -hmm. Meaningful interactions and also contributing to that thing we all want, meaningful work, right? That sense of that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, you say, you know, that in terms of how a workplace would generate this, it's not, it's not about like having mixers or having special events, <laughs> but meals, which is so obvious. I have to say, you know, we uh, moved our show in, into an independent production two years ago. And I, I think one of the most, I mean, we have a wonderful open hospitable space, but we have a, we have a kitchen table, right? And that the fact that some combination of us have lunch together, you know, every day, I I cannot imagine the, this workplace without that. And when I've never and I've never been in a workplace that, that had that before. Um, but it, it but it's so it's so obvious, isn't it? I mean, we know as human beings that meals uh, <laughs> that relationships happen around meals uh it's it's such a good example of a knowing doing gap where yeah. we all have this understanding in our heads but we rarely put it into practice as you say in all the rest of our lives we know that that is where we gather and make a connection and yet this place where we spend so much of our lives we've sec separated it out it's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's, it, it is a little bit unfortunate. And, I mean, these, these ideas of mixers and company parties, they're such poor substitutes. Well, right, uh, and I think actually that's where the boundary issue comes in because that doesn't quite do it, right? That kind of takes you out of context and can be awkward. It, yeah, totally. And there's, there, there are these really clever studies showing that people don't mix at mixers. They talk to their friends. <laughs> and, and at company parties, you tend to interact with similar others, which sort of defeats the purpose. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is so fun. So uh, you also are a magician. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to end here without asking. Like, how you know what? How all of that intersects with all of this? All these things we've been talking about. What you do. Your uh. passion. I'm not sure it does, but if I, if I had to, to try to draw a connection, I would say that one of the things that really sort of, I guess, brought me to magic as a kid was I loved being surprised and entertained and seeing something that I thought was impossible look possible. And I think that a lot of, I guess, the teaching and research I've tried to do since um, captures some of that element of surprise um, that, you know, people think that generosity is a disadvantage, but it could also be an advantage. Um, and also, you know, my hope is in teaching and, and sharing insights to try to entertain people a little bit along the way. And I guess I've tried to, as one of my mentors suggested, unleash a little bit of that inner magician in the classroom, which is great fun, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully for, for not just me, but the students and audiences as well. Well, it, it occurs to me also that, um, that when I don't know, just the way the words, words like giver and giving and generosity and service, you know, if you kind of throw them into the room and talk about them in terms of the workplace, one might have a very one. It might sound like labor, right? Um, and you really talk about these things as both fun and you know pleasurable and life giving and and mysterious, um, puzzling in their effects. I think that's a nice way to capture it. Um, there, there was an editor, Rick Horgan, who told me uh, when I was first working on the Give and Take book, he said, wait, I've already been told that I need to be a giver in my family and <laughs> through my religious institution. Now you're telling me I got to give it work too? Right. Gosh. 
And I said, no, 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 that's not the point, right? The, the point is not to, to experience a sense of pressure and obligation or to feel like you're a bad person if you don't give, but rather to say that we all have these values in these moments where we enjoy helping others. And if we could structure our jobs to bring in more of those, our work would be a little bit less miserable. Mm. So um, you, one of the ways you give is that you, you draw attention to other people's work. You, you, you have a voice on on some great platforms and you use that. And, uh, I was noticing, um, I guess this was a blog. Was it something, your, your website, you do kind of roundups of, um, research that other people have done that you think is interesting, things that are fueling your imagination and your emerging questions. So I just wanted to ask like, you know, what, what is, is there something that sparked your imagine lately or what, you know, what questions are you wrestling with, Today, that you know, you that your own research or other people's research has just now started to formulate robustly for you as a question. Ooh, well, I guess the the thing that I've been working on most lately is uh, really inspired in a, a lot of ways by this idea of trying to take take her cultures and turn them into giver cultures. Yeah. Um, which the fundamental question is is how do you champion a new idea that goes against the grain? And I've been doing a bunch of research on that for the past few years, you know, asking if, if you have a thought about how the world around you could be better, um, but it's not necessarily popular or well understood. How do you advocate for it effectively? And I uh, actually just finished writing uh, my second book, which is going to be oh. about this very topic. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's been occupying most of my mental energy of late. Uh, but it's, uh, it's about uh, what I've come to call originals, which are, are people who reject conformity. Uh, and try to champion new ideas. And I think what I'm hoping to try to explain is uh, what does it take, you know, after you've had a a flash of insight or noticed a problem, uh, to know that you have a good idea and then to be able to speak up without getting shot down and and build a coalition of allies who want to help make that better world a reality with you. And and how does that uh, work together with this notion of givers and takers, with this... this, uh interest you have in us as serving, generous, giving people, and that that being a virtue? Well, I think the the connection is that the givers are often looking to reject the world as it was handed to them and instead figure out how it could be better for those around them. Yeah. And I think oftentimes that that requires, you know, sort of leaving behind, right, an accepted practice or maybe a familiar way of doing things to see if there's a, a better system. Um, and in particular, this I guess this lens might might be useful to disagreeable givers uh, who are looking for ways to get heard. Um, and those are those givers people. who aren't who aren't on the surface aren't the the warm fuzzy <laughs> people you know, but who have these huge hearts and actually make people's lives better. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, this this idea you're talking about at the originals, it does seem like. Um, it, you know, you, we talked early on about this fundamental observation you've made that um, givers are overrepresented on both ends of the spectrum. They 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 are the one they they get ahead. They are successful, and they also are, can be kind of held back uh, or looked over. It seems to me that this, the, I mean, the work of bringing something new into the world that hasn't been done before, and therefore people say it can't be done, um, takes so much perseverance. And uh, confidence in your vision and um, 
it would strike me that some people who are givers, uh, you know, that that could be a liability just in that perseverance and that kind of fighting piece that's involved in starting something new. That's the hope. I think that a lot of us wander around assuming that in order to challenge the status quo, you have to believe in your ideas. Yeah. And in fact, uh, one of the things I found in doing all this, this research for originals is most people who have improved the world were actually full of self-doubt and ambivalence. Mm-hmm. They just found ways to power forward anyway. Mm, I love that. That's a contribution. Yeah. Well, that remains to be seen, but <laughs> I'm, I'm encouraged that you think that. It's a nuance, right? I mean, to, to, to all the other ways we're talking about th- that kind of thing. Um, so I was so... Um, so I, I, I asked you the question when we started to speak, the question I, I always ask. I've, I've alighted on this in recent years as kind of a magic question, magical question in terms of what it elicits, the question of, you know, asking somebody about the spiritual and religious background of their childhood. And I, I do find that many people have a great story wherever they are in that spectrum now. But more than that, that it's a good place to plant a conversation because it's kind of a searching place of us. It's a place that's rooted in questions, and that's not necessarily how we usually greet the world as adults. And in your one of your roundups, I think it was your roundup for 2014, um, there was some research about uh, a question that that is a good question to ask people, to, to, which is, what did you enjoy doing at age 10? Do you know what I'm talking about, this research? Yeah, keep going. Yeah, so, so that sometimes by looking back into the past, you, and this is psychological research, you can get a glimpse of who you really are and what you loved before others started telling you what you should do. So this was this was informative for me about why that question I ask is is uh, is so valuable. Um, and so here's what I, what I thought I would ask you. Um, and I was saying that New York Times piece in 2013, I mean, it did talk about you as being socially awkward, shy, introverted, didn't like parties. <laughs> um, Still don't like parties, okay. but go on. <laughs> okay. Um, but so here's what I wanted to ask. Um, you know, what have you learned through all this work you've done? You know, what have you learned about what it means to be human that would have delighted the, delighted the you, the Adam Grant, um, at age 10? Oh, what a wonderful question. (laughs) I think I probably would have been delighted to find out that I think the the core of our humanity is stepping above and beyond our own narrow needs and concerns and goals and thinking about how we can contribute to others. And I guess what would have surprised my 10-year-old self is that in the long run, the people who, who bring out that concern for others who exercise that muscle of generosity regularly actually achieve the greatest success in the long run and also find the richest meaning and happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, uh, that's, that would have probably pleased me and startled me a little bit too. Hmm. Um, anything else, anything you would want to talk about or circle back to or something that, Nonlinear that feels like it flows out of this, it feels important to you? Oh, I guess what, one thing I might add is I hate to leave the matchers out of the discussion altogether. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, only because, you know, if, if you think about the givers and takers being the extremes, most of us hover in the middle, at least at work. And, you know, we kind of, to play it safe, we adopt this quid pro quo I'll do something for you if you do something for me. 
Um, and I think that, that matchers are sorely needed in our work, in our lives, because they're really the people who make the world go around. So let me just um, let me just so the, it's that it's these three ways of being givers, takers and matchers. And you, th- these are more the majority of people would fall into that category. Is that right? That's right. OK, so um, so go on. So they're important. Yeah. So what's great about matchers is they believe in fairness. And that means they're the people who punish takers and try to either reform them or protect the rest of us against them. Because after all, that violates the rule of justice if somebody is constantly out exploiting others. Um, But they're also the people who reward the givers. Hmm. Um, Matchers are the people who believe that if you're generous, you deserve to benefit from that. And so they'll be more likely to open doors for givers. They're likely to spread positive reputational information about givers, which is called pro-social gossip. Great term. Pro-social gossip. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's that's that that thing where where people are going around behind your back and saying really nice things about you. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that it's too easy to say I just want to live in a world where there are givers. No, we need a world that's a mix of givers and matchers because a world of just givers is vulnerable to exploitation by takers. Mm. Um, and it's mm. the the matchers who really play the karma police role. And uh, I think we need to do a better job welcoming those people into our lives and celebrating them. That's also. I mean, what you're describing is also a form of service and giving, right? I mean, that, that's a contribution that um, that matchers make. It is. And the funny thing is that a lot of matchers will just bristle at the idea of being referred to as generous. And they'll say, no, my values are justice and fairness. Hmm. And I, I will say, but yes, but you're helping givers succeed and you're contributing to a world of more givers and that's an act of generosity. Hmm. And then at that point, they will usually end the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, yes. Oh, okay. Um, I've got a question behind the glass, so I'm going to be quiet for a minute while I'm listening. Oh, Yeah. 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 Um, can you, I, I'm going to, I don't know if you could hear that, but I'm going to restate it. Um, right. And I, I actually, I meant to ask you this. Um, I mean, one of the things that comes through in what's written about you is this volume of your commitments that, you know, your helplessness to the point that would feel exhausting. It was honestly kind of exhausting for me to read about. <laughs> noble, I'm so sorry. Noble, but exhausting. Um, uh, I wonder as you, I mean, as you know, you now have three children as you're, as you get older, I mean, you're also, you're this very young tenured professor, but as you, as you get older, settle into your body as we do, um, as your children get older, um, you know, do, do, do you find yourself shifting that energy and, 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 and like, how do you, how do you renew yourself? And, and do you, are you learning things about boundaries, um, that you perhaps didn't deal with in your early twenties? Oh, yes. Uh, I think one of the lessons and effects of the New York times story was, Um, It's not necessarily a useful thing in your life to have an international newspaper tell random strangers that you like being helpful. (laughs) 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 I got thousands of emails from people asking for the most bizarre variety of things that I wasn't qualified to offer. Uh. 
And it, it really, as I guess, you know, it, it was easy to say yes to everything when I was only visible inside an ivory tower. Mm-hmm. And uh, once my work became more salient to people, um, I started getting more requests and it was just more than I could handle individually. And I think what, what I learned to do was prioritize who I wanted to help. Um, so it's family first, students second, colleagues third, everybody else fourth. Mm-hmm. And friends fall somewhere in there too, although they're like, that's usually just like a conversation, right? Friends are less often asking for help. So I don't know where to put them in the hierarchy. But mm. um, now when I get a request, I will ask, is this going to compromise my ability to be there for my family and to deliver on my commitments to my students? Mm. And it also means that, you know, there's some colleagues who probably um, have more negative views of my concern for others than my students do. And yeah, that's something I've had to become comfortable living with to say I didn't become a professor to inspire other professors. Okay. <laughs> I, I became a professor because I wanted to make a difference in the lives of students. And that's the group that matters most to me professionally. And so when my, my time is conflicted or scarce, I will always prioritize students first and foremost professionally. Um, and that's been a really valuable experience to go through. And I think that's a really helpful kind of template, you know, guideline for how other people in other configurations can create those boundaries for themselves. I hope so. At minimum, it's just a realization that you can't be equally giving to everyone. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when, when you are going to face trade-offs, it's useful to know what your priorities and principles are. Mm-hmm. Well, Adam, thank you so much for making this time. It's been great. And we'll, um, we'll stay in touch with you about what's happening with this on the air and um, really appreciate what you do in this conversation. No, Chris, it's been an honor to be on the show. I'm amazed at how thoughtful your questions are and how thorough your preparation is. And I really appreciate the opportunity to share these ideas. And uh, I can just say if the world of radio had more givers, uh, we would all listen more and be more (laughs) enthusiastic about participating, too. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's uh, that's an overly complimentary description, but I enjoyed it. <laughs>